thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come and worship you through the word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word and see what you want us to learn from this. In your son's precious name, amen. All right, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 9. And I'm going to read through 15. I don't know if we're going to make it all the way to 15. <laughs> but we're going to read through it anyway just to see. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of the, all principality and power, in whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision not made, uh, made without hands, in putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried in him with, in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith and the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and to the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us, which was the contrary to us, and took but one, but took it, and took it but of the way, nailing it to his cross. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So we're going to look at this. We're continuing this uh, section here. And, and Paul goes in here, For in him, Christ Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now this is a, one of these scriptures that in English it doesn't read as powerful as it is in Greek because literally it says, in him dwells all the deity bodily. Where it said Godhead, the word in Greek is deity. Jesus was God. And if you read people who will tell you that he was not God, he never said it. Oftentimes, and we've talked about this, Jesus very clearly said that he was God. And one of the greatest places was when he was talking to the Pharisees and he said, and they go, you know, you, you're, all, you're not yet at 30, and how did you know Abraham? And his answer was, before Abraham was, I am. And when he said that, it says that they picked up stones <laughs> to stone him. Why were they going to stone him? Because when he said, I am, he was saying, I am God. And they knew that he was saying, I am God. And their reaction shows that they knew that he was saying that he was God. All right. The, the mission from the, the comments from the angels that the Messiah has been born was that God has been born. Emmanuel, God dwell, God with you. All these words tells us that Jesus was God. This verse is telling us he was God. And he was not, you know, and we've talked about this before, he was not half man, half God. That's a human concept of the the demigods, you know, the gods came down, fooled around with women, and had half, half gods, half, half uh, men. Jesus was fully man, fully God. His wasn't one, one plus one, you know, it was one times one. He was a full, completely man, fully, completely God. Because if he was not man, he could not have died for the sins of man. And if he was not God... He could not have lived the perfect life that he had to live. He needed to be completely holy both, which was the whole purpose of the virgin birth and all that stuff that we've covered in the past. But it says, in him dwells all the fullness of deity. Okay. Why did Paul have to tell them this? Well, they're in a, they're in a time when Romans are ruling. And before that, the Greeks ruled. So what are they thinking when you say that you have a man that is 
that is uh, the son of God through a woman. They're thinking Hercules, you know, uh, Perseus, all these, all these demigods, half gods. And so Paul was saying, no, in him was full God. He wasn't half a god and he wasn't half man. He was all the way God. Why are we stressing on this? Because it is so important for us to understand. The virgin birth of Jesus was something totally different from anything we can comprehend. And it's beyond us because we can't figure out how you put, you know, 100% God and 100% man in one body and, and say that they're still 100% and 100%. You know, even those who don't really like math know that 100% plus 100% doesn't equal 100%. Okay? He was 100% Man, 100% God, this is what Paul is saying. He is. He is permanently dwelled with God. Not temporarily, not partially. You know, there are some people that teach that Jesus didn't really get God until he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came on him. No, he was God from the very beginning. <laughs> you know, I, I tell you these things because it may sound weird to us because we're not exposed to these things, but there's some really strange teachings that go on. If you listen to the radio or TV preachers, you can hear some really strange teachings. And I want to make sure that when there's something out there that might confuse you, you hear it first here and hear it the right way. So that you know that when it comes up, you're not going to be confused. Then he says, and you are complete in him, which is the head of principality and power. Do you know when we become a Christian, we're made a new creation in Christ, and he takes us and he dumps us into Christ. <laughs> we are complete in him. And this complete means totally filled up with God. You know, most of us don't live that way. You know, I know I don't live that way. And you know, what I've seen in most people, they don't live that way either. But you know, we have the power to let God rule our life if we will just let him. Doesn't mean I'm going to go around in my own strength doing, doing all the things right. But it means that God is perfectly capable if I will allow him to crucify my flesh to let him live out of me. I am complete in him. And what is it said? He is the head, the supreme, over all principalities and powers. Powers are any authority. Principalities are the angelic authorities. And he is over everything. Now, what I've shared with this, to me, the greatest thing that we have with God is that he's supreme and in charge. <laughs> you know, nothing is something that God is worried about. He says, I'm in charge, and he is going to get his way. He's the only entity in all of the universe that can say, I will always have my way. <laughs> and you know, he knows the beginning from the end. We've talked about this. Nothing surprises him. Nothing, you know, and I love this, and I've said this many times, the words you're never going to hear from God is, oh my goodness, I didn't know that was going to happen. You know, you'll never hear that from God. He always knows what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. And oftentimes we look at our lives and go, God, how can you be in control with all these bad things happening to me? You know, I'm not going to have, to have you raise your hands, but I know, because I, I always mind, I know I've done it. God, why, why are all these bad things happening? How can you be in control? But I revert back to God's in control. You know, he is in control. He knows what's going on. On. And you know, back a while ago, we had this uh, saying on the board, and I, I loved it. God's will is what you would choose if you knew everything. 
Okay? So think about that. When you're having a really bad time, realize that if you knew everything, I mean everything, what's going to happen 50 years from now or lesser if you're <laughs> to an age where you don't want to live 50 years? You know, uh, if you knew everybody around you, everything about them, everybody that you have any impact on indirectly, if you knew all of those things, whatever happens to you is exactly what you would choose to happen. Now, I want that to sink in because it's so important to understand. God knows what's best for us, even when we think that he's lost, his, lost control and lost his mind. And, uh, and I know when I say that nobody in their mind will ever say out loud probably that God's lost control and lost his mind. But haven't you thought it once in a while? God, uh, you just don't seem to be in control here. God, it seems like you've lost your mind putting me through this trial, trouble. The point that we want to remember is God is always in control. And we are in the one who has control. So when we have something hit us that is really bad in our mind, we go, God, what are you trying to, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? What are you trying to show somebody else around my life? Now, sometimes it may be that God is just saying, I want to teach your children how you handle troubles. I want to show them how a godly person handles tribulation. I want to show your neighbors how a godly person handles tribulation. I want to show your co-workers how a godly person handles tribulation. It may be just that simple. It may not be anything that you want to know or even go through, but God says you handle it in a godly way and people are watching you. Yeah, very important for us to understand that. God is looking for people to demonstrate his love, his faithfulness. You know, how hard is it to forgive somebody? You know, and God's saying, I want you to learn to forgive. The Bible reading today was all about forgiveness. You know, how much do we forgive? And this verse here is about that. Verse 11 says, In whom you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of sin of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now circumcision for the Jews was a very big deal. At eight days old, the males were circumcised and it was a symbol of the family's dedication to God. And hopefully his future dedication to God. But you know, that circumcision really didn't mean anything if he didn't make it of his heart. In Jeremiah, it says that God will give the circumcision of the heart. He will cut away the flesh from the heart and reveal himself to people. Now, how many people have you seen that have been raised in a good, godly home and not follow God? Now, I've seen it many times. Sometimes it's because they had a, you know, uh, overly exaggerated expectation from their parents, sometimes it is that they just didn't want to obey God. And it's really sad. You know, I'm not even going to ask this, how many of you have prodigals in your family? <laughs> you know, most of us have at least one person who was a prodigal, who went off, did his own thing, in spite of being taught God's way. The good news is God says that they're going to come back, or at least they have a great opportunity to come back. They've been taught, they have his word in their mind, how many people have ever tried to sin when you knew it was wrong? <laughs> you know, there's no joy in it. There's no enjoyment in it. And, you, and there's nothing but conviction. You're going, okay, I know I'm not supposed to do this, God. Uh, quit, just leave me alone. I want to enjoy this day for this moment. And God says, nope, you know better. You know, a prodigal is that same way. They know better. They might harden their heart 
Now, they might harden their heart, but they know better. There's not even a question that they know better. And they're going to be convicted. And you know what? God is waiting for them to turn. God is waiting for us to turn when we do things wrong. He says, I want to circumcise you. I want you to turn. I want you to repent. And what is repent? You tell God, I'm sorry for what I've done, and you turn back to him. Now, repentance isn't, God, I'm sorry for, I'm sorry for doing this sin, and I'm going to go right out and do it again. That's not repentance. That's not even confession <laughs> to God. Not just, God, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry you're making life miserable. I'm going to go do it again anyway. Now, uh, the old story about the boy being put in the corner, you know, because he was misbehaving and saying to mom, to mom, well, I'm sitting in the corner, but I'm running around in my mind. <laughs> you know, oftentimes we'll do that. God, I'm, I'm outwardly showing you that, you know, showing people that I have repented and I'm a good Christian, but in my mind, I'm just waiting for the opportunity to do it. Jesus says, I'm, you know, in this message, I want to circumcise your flesh away from you. You know, we have a great problem in our flesh. You know, most people say, well, I was tempted to do something. Yeah, but you weren't tempted by the demons, most likely. We're told that we have three problems in and ourselves. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Our flesh wants to do wrong things because we are sinners. If it's not crucified, and it will want to sin. Then we have the problem of our eyes, seeing things and wanting things that we shouldn't be wanting. And not just sexual lust and all that. You know, how many times have you seen something that you really decide, I have to have? Now, we've talked about this. There's a wonderful multi-billion dollar industry out there trying to help you have the lust of the eyes. And if you watch TV, it's, it's really bad. If you read magazines and newspapers, there's all kinds of ads all over the place saying, you really need this thing that you never knew that you needed. Now, you never needed, knew you needed this little cup to boil your eggs because eggs are hard to, hard to, hard to peel. Now, uh, still don't understand that one. Uh, pancakes are so hard to flip, you have to have this pan that covers both sides and you just flip the whole pan over. So you, you know, but you know, I never thought I had a need for any of those things and I still don't obviously think I have a need for all those things. But you know, we have a whole industry out there trying to teach us from the lust of the eyes. You really have to have this and you need to covet after it and lust after it because you just never knew you needed it, but we're going to tell you you needed it. It's really bad when it might be something we need. But when it's something we don't need at all, it's really bad. And it's the flesh. And then the pride of life. What will make me look good? How many of you have ever stood your ground knowing that you were wrong or knowing that it was hurting the person you were standing the ground with, but because you weren't going to look bad... You would not just say, I'm sorry, or drop the issue. You had to fight because the pride of your life got involved and said, I'm going to win this argument. I'm going to win this issue because I am right. And I've shared with people, I try very hard in my life to figure out, is the issue that I'm going to take a stand on a life or death spiritual issue? If it's not, it really isn't that big a deal. I don't need to be right. And it's very important for us to understand that. When do we harm people because of our stand of being right? I am just going to be right. It splits churches. It splits families. It splits workers in a business. It splits friends. 
And I am just going to be right because I must be right. Part of our internal problems. And God is saying, I want to circumcise all that out of you. I want to cut it away from your life. Cut the flesh out. Then he talks about baptism. Buried in baptism wherein you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. Baptism, the picture of death, burial, and resurrection. Death to the old, whatever that might be. In this particular case, he's saying death to sin. I die to sin and I'm raised up in Christ. I'm immersed in, into Christ. And that's what baptism means, be immersed, dunked into. Uh, and we've talked about this. When we're put in Christ, we are baptized into Christ. And in his case, he leaves us there. And how do what happens when we're left in Christ? Slowly, the spirit fills us and is drawn into us. The picture that I've used in the past is the idea of making pickles. I don't know if anybody's here made pickles or pickled cucumbers or anything. You put the vegetable in vinegar. You immerse it into the vinegar. What does that vegetable do to become a pickle? It doesn't do anything, does it? It stays where you put it. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it absorbs the vinegar, and it is no longer the same texture or taste of what you put into it. This is what God does with us. He immerses us in himself, and slowly he fills us to a point where we are no longer the same person. Living Christianity is a wonderful thing as long as you'll stay in Christ. <laughs> he will change you. And it's his job to change you. He's like the vinegar. He will get inside you, and he will change you. And this is what he said. You're buried. Your flesh is killed and dead. And then you're raised up into a new life, a new way of thinking. Or as 2 Corinthians, uh, uh, Corinthians 2, uh, 5.17 says, we are a new creation because we got saved. We have power that we don't understand half the time. And he says, stay in him. Be in him. Be buried in him. And be made new. And I hope that as you've walked with God, you're starting to see just that. As you go and just walk with him, you're becoming more loving, more kind, more gentle, more peaceful. Why? Not because you're sitting there saying, I must, you know, how many of you get up every morning saying, I must be kind, I must be forgiving, I must be good, I must, you know, uh, I don't know many people do it. If you did, you still wouldn't be probably even one hour into the day, especially if you live with somebody. You know, it doesn't take long if you live with somebody to be unpeaceful and unhappy and needing to forgive somebody very quickly. Now, if you're all by yourself, you might be able to do it a little longer than other people, depending on what you dwell on and what you think about. But he says, being baptized in Christ. You know, but when we do baptisms, it's just an outward show of what has been done internally already, and you're agreeing that I want to show people that I have been changed. You know, we need to get more people saved, so we're going to have some more baptisms. <laughs> you know, but you know, it's an outward sign that I have been changed in my heart. I now know God, and I want to show everybody. Jesus was baptized of John as an, as an act of obedience. And it was from that point on. Every time in Acts that somebody got saved, they got baptized. Why? 
Well, in their case, they were Jewish people. They understood the full purpose of baptism, which was, I agree to live under the, the new teachings. I'm dying to my old teachings, and I'm being raised up to the new teachings. And they understood that. For us, we have to teach people what it is all about in the first place. <laughs> but you know, it is a very precious thing to be baptized. Now, I, I, I got baptized in the Atlantic Ocean. We had a whole crowd of people watching us. <laughs> We had the church there, we sang songs, a whole crowd of people that weren't Christians got gathered around and wondered what was going on. And it was about me and about four or five other people got baptized. Now, that's one good thing about going out to a river or someplace. You, you can draw a crowd of non-Christians and you can preach the gospel message. This is what they're doing. You know, this is what they're doing. And he says, you're to be buried with them. And you, being dead from your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you of all your transgressions. Once we are dead in our flesh, he quickens us. He makes us alive. How does he make us alive? Spiritually alive. And this is why I love seeing somebody who's newly saved. And the bright spiritual glow upon their face and the excitement in their heart God has changed who they are, and they're a new creation. And you can see it. The really sad thing is the longer we walk with God, the, the less we seem to remember that time when we were new. Now, I remember when I was first saved, I witnessed to everybody. Didn't know anything about what I was talking to, but I witnessed to everybody. Now I don't witness to quite as many people. I still witness, but I don't witness to every single person. I shared with you the first week after I got saved, I, I had so many people at the bus stop waiting for the church bus that the bus driver was going, what was going on? You know, uh, I go, we're ready for Sunday school. <laughs> you know, and there were a whole bunch of people there. Because my answer was, I don't know what I did, but come to, come to Sunday school and they'll, tell you, they'll teach you, <laughs> come to church with me and they'll tell you what to do. You know, I didn't have the answers, but I knew where the answers were. We need to always be aware, and I've shared with you, most people do not share the gospel for one major reason. They're afraid somebody's going to ask them something they don't know the answer to. And you guys could probably refer it back to me because I've said this so many times. If they ask you something that you don't know, which is your greatest fear, it's actually the best thing that can possibly happen to them because your answer is real simple. I don't know the answer to that. I want to go find the answer. Can we meet again next week or tomorrow or whatever the next day is, and I'm going to go find that answer. You now have two times to give them the gospel. And hopefully, they'll ask you another question you don't know the answer to. So that you can go, you know what, that's a good question. I don't know the answer, but can we meet again? <laughs> How long could you keep up with somebody asking you questions like that and being able to say, I'm going to go find the answers. Let's talk again. And each time you go back to the gospel. Here's the answer to, the, to what you said. You know you're a sinner. You know that you deserve punishment. Jesus paid for it. Do you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You know, the message is so simple. You know, the gospel message. We are sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin, singular sin, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. You know, how hard is this to share with people? But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died while we were his enemy so that we could become his children. All we have to do is confess the Lord with our mouth. God, I am a sinner. I agree with you. I deserve punishment. Come in and be my Lord. And have your life totally changed. Become a new creation. 
be circumcised, you have your flesh circumcised and thrown aside and have your baptism into the, the love of God. Very powerful when we look at this. And he completes us. He makes us full. And he quickens us, makes us alive, and forgives us of, what is that next word in there? Some, some of our sins? Most of our sins? All of our sins. He forgives us of all sin. And by all, he means past, present, and future. All of your sins. Does that mean we can just go around and sin all we want because they're forgiven? Well, you probably could. It's not the best thing. There's consequences for doing that lifestyle. Paul said, God forbid that you would, that you would do something like that. And it would show by doing that that you don't understand God's love and grace for you. But our love for him when he changes us and forgives us is, you have forgiven me. I want to show you my, my gratefulness. I want to serve you. I have been forgiven. I should be able to forgive others. I have been shown such great love by God. I should be able to love others. And what is forgiveness? You know, a lot of people say, well, I've forgiven, but I definitely won't forget. Well, you know what? You probably won't forget. Why? Because you're doing one of the biggest problems with, with uh, lack of forgiveness. You keep remembering it. If you have forgiven somebody, you quit bringing the issue back to memory. How many of you have ever been in, a, in an argument, usually with a spouse, and they go, well, you did this uh, last week, the week before, a month ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. <laughs> they haven't forgiven you. <laughs> You know, you've never been forgiven. Hopefully you don't do that. Hopefully you don't do that with uh, people. But you know, it should be, you know, I really don't remember the last time you've done this. It was only 10 minutes ago, but I don't remember the last time you did this to me. You know, uh, very important. We stop thinking about it. We stop talking about it. How many of you ever had somebody tell you about how mad they are with somebody because of something they did 20 years ago or you know, a month ago, and you don't even know the person. I mean, it's bad enough if you know the person. You know, but I've had people that will go, well, you know, this person, I go, who? I don't know who that is. I really don't care. <laughs> well, you know, they did. What, what, <laughs> you're trying to make me feel bad about the person I don't even know? Yeah. Why? They're trying to do just that, make you feel bad. If you're talking about the sins of somebody else, you're trying to make other people feel bad with you about them. And it really doesn't work. You know, it doesn't accomplish anything other than making somebody, you know, get mad at somebody they've never even met. You know, we want to be very careful of true forgiveness. Quit thinking about the person. Can we totally erase what's been done? No, our brain holds everything that's ever been there. But how many of you can remember what you ate 10 days ago for lunch? You know, it's in your brain somewhere. Some people can because they eat the same thing all the time, but, you know, uh, but unless there's something special about an event, we don't usually think about it. But what would we do when somebody's wronged us? We keep churning it up. Every time we see them, we churn it up and say, I'm going to keep that in the forefront of my mind so that the next time they do it, I'll be even angrier at them <laughs> than it deserves. Have you ever had somebody get really angry at you for what seemed like no reason? Or have you ever gotten angry with somebody for no real, real no reason when you thought about, you know, you chewed them out, you ripped them to shreds, and then you go, why did I do that? 
you probably had some of the thing that you're angry on it with them, or you're angry at somebody else and took it out on them. You know, that happens a lot of times in families. Somebody's angry with somebody else, but they can't get mad at them, so they get upset with the family and hurt the family because the family has to forgive them. <laughs> we see it in churches as well. You know, the family has to forgive me. They're, they're going to forgive me because they're family. But you know, we are forgiven, and that forgiveness should generate forgiveness for others. Is it easy to forgive people? We all know that it's not, unless God is working through you. When he's worked through us, we will be forgiving. And hopefully you're noticing that you're more forgiving. You know, in, a, in the Bible reading in, in Matthew, it was about the unforgiving servant. He was forgiven of a debt so large that he could never pay it back, even though he said, give me time and I'll pay it back. And the king forgave him. Went out and, and grabbed somebody that owed him what would be equivalent of $100 and threw him in jail because he couldn't pay him. He had just been forgiven billions of dollars, something he would never be able to f pay back, and he's giving somebody a hard time about a little trivial debt. The point of that story is, is just that. God has forgiven us a debt that we cannot pay. Okay? Our sin debt is a debt we cannot pay to God. No matter how hard we try, we cannot pay it. And he says, my son paid that debt for you. Here's the cross. Come on over. And that should motivate us to show love to people who can forgive, be forgiven of the debt they owe us, because nobody owes us a debt that is unpayable. And he says, forgiveness. You have been forgiven. And then verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that were against you, which was contrary to us, and took it but of the way, nailing it to his cross. You know, one of the things that happens if you are arrested for a crime what is the first thing that is done? The police officers make out a report of the crime. And that is used in court to accuse you. When you go to court, if you've ever been to court or been watching court or been around a court or seen a court on TV, the first thing that's done in the trial is the charges are read to you. You know exactly what the charges are and what you're being held accountable for. That's what this verse is saying. He took the ordinances, the written ordinances, and erased them. Do you realize that when God forgives us, he says, not that you are found innocent. He makes it so that there weren't even any charges in the first place. Okay? We are not acquitted by God. And I hope you know what that term means. Acquitted means they just couldn't find enough evidence to make the charges. They still think you're, you know, when you're acquitted, they still think you're guilty. They just can't prove it. We are not acquitted by God. And you know what? We are guilty. <laughs> and he says, I have taken your sins and put them on my son. He treats us as if we have never sinned when we're his children. Think about that for a moment. Will that change the way you look at God and the way you perceive God? He treats us as if we have never sinned. Because that's how he sees us. He put all of our sin upon Jesus. 
and we take on the righteousness of Christ by, by being put in him, and God says, there's my perfect children. How will that change the way you start treating God with God? To really realize he sees you as perfect. Not as well washed, not as well forgiven, but he sees us as perfect. He's taken the penalty, the charges, and put them on the cross. He nailed them to the cross. And what did he say? It says that he nailed them to the cross after he erased them in the first place. He erases the charges, he blots them out, then he puts them on the cross to be covered by the blood. Oh, the grace of God. If we could only begin to understand his grace and in the, in the, his mercy. He loves us so much that he says, you are perfect. I'm going to give you everything that I have to give you. Eternal life is part of that. And then in verse 15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. This is a picture of a battle. He has destroyed them. He has stripped them of all their authority. He has stripped them of everything they have. That's what it means to spoil them. And then he takes the captives, just as they did. The Romans were famous for this and many others before that. They would take the captive army, humiliate them, and march them through the center of town, showing that they had been conquered. Satan and his demons have been shown and spoiled and paraded before God in defeat. You know, we have a defeated enemy. He doesn't act like a defeated enemy, but he is a defeated enemy. Jesus defeated him at the cross. And if we start living in Christ, we have a power that says he has no power. He has no power. And we know by the story of Job that even when he thinks he has power, he's got to go to God and ask to be able to do something. How afraid should we be of somebody who has to ask permission to do anything to anybody? God, I really want to give them a hard time. Can I... You know, I really want to try their faith. Uh, would you let me? Well, worse yet, God points you out like he did Job. <laughs> you know, have you considered Job? <laughs> oh, yeah, God, I've considered him, but you got him too well protected. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, so Job can be an example of how to follow me. For another 5,000 years, he'll be an example of how to follow me. Here, go ahead, Satan, you can, you can try. God is wanting to put Satan on display. And he uses us to be able to put him on display. He says, okay, you can go get, you can go get Pastor Ralph. Go, go give him a hard time. See, see if you can make him fall. Sometimes I fall, sometimes I don't. When I don't, I've been a good witness on the stand. When I fall, bad witness on the stand. How many of you watch courtroom shows, you know, and you've got these really good witnesses that hold up to all the withering counterattack of the attorneys? You know, then you've got the one that falls apart after just a couple minutes. Especially if you watch Perry Mason, he's always got a witness that falls apart. <laughs> He'd never solve half his cases if he didn't have a witness fall apart. The Satan is trying to do that. He's trying to cross-examine <coughs> us and say, will we fall apart as a witness before God? 
or are we going to stay strong with him and be able to lift him up? And you know what? Even if you are the witness that falls apart, you're still forgiven by God and, and lifted up and says, okay, we're going to let you try this again. You know, good news for you, when you fail the test, you get to keep doing it until you pass it. <laughs> I don't know whether that's good news or not, but hopefully if you've taken a test long enough, you start knowing the answers and you start passing the test. Uh, I know there's one guy who goes, I've, I'm going to keep taking this test until I pass it because I'll get all the answers memorized. I'm going, that's fine, whatever it takes to get the answer. But you know, God does that with us. He says, you're going to keep doing this test. It may not be the same exact test, but it's the same test. Are you going to forgive the, be forgiving? And he'll keep putting people in your life that are hard to forgive. Are you going to be loving? He'll keep putting people in your life that are hard to love. And be trying to work this out with you. He wants us to grow. He wants us to see this. And he says, Satan has been paraded through heaven defeated. He is a defeated enemy. We have to understand that and go forward with this knowledge that he is defeated. All right, we're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to be with us. Help us to learn to let you control our lives. Let us know that you have cut away the flesh, that you have crucified the flesh. Help us to live in that victory. Help us to learn to let you change our lives, that we will become more like you in each passing day. Lord, anybody who doesn't know you as your Savior, Lord, we ask that they will admit that they're a sinner, confess that they are a sinner, and that they deserve punishment and, and accept you and ask you to come in their life and fill them. And then they can start to be one of your children and follow God and get into your word. And we just thank you for all of that in your son's name. Amen.